Welcome, everyone, and good afternoon. I'm glad to be here with you to share this series titled Restore 10. Now, this seminar is just the beginning of a study that you and I can be involved in for the rest of our life. As my wife and I have been studying this for several years, we, we realize you cannot exhaust this material. And the reason for that is because it has to do with the very character of God himself. Several years ago, I was doing an evangelistic series, and one of my topics was on the law and grace of God. And in the notes, it, it, it talked about that you should not steal because God is honest, and you should not commit adultery because God is pure. And I went home that night, and I began to ask questions, such as, I should have no other gods before me because God is what? I shouldn't serve or worship an idol because God is what? I shouldn't take his name in vain because God is what? And as I continued to ask God these questions, he began to answer and show me from his word over and over again how the law related to his character and how that would relate to the gospel and the message of righteousness by faith and salvation for you and I. And so, no, friends, we will not exhaust this material this week but we will get a nice window into the heart of God as we look at each commandment. As I've talked to my wife, we've talked to different Christians and especially youth and even among Seventh-day Adventists, asking them about how they looked at the law of God. We would do surveys, and a lot of times we would get negative answers checked off on that survey. Sometimes people would say that God's law is overbearing, it's restrictive, it's just a set of rules. Some would even look at it as a checklist, as if they, if they got it right, they would make it into heaven. But friends, that's not how God wanted us to look at this. We would read in the Great Controversy, page 465, it tells us this, the nature and the importance of the law of God have been, to a great extent, lost sight of. A wrong conception of the character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of the, divine, of the divine law has led to errors in relation to conversion and sanctification and has resulted in lowering the standard of piety in the church. So if we're looking at it in a negative way, if we're looking at it, it through a, a wrong lens, it's going to affect our conversion and our sanctification. So it is my hope and prayer that by the end of the week, those that perhaps are watching it may have thought this way or think this way will get a different view of the character of God as we share through each commandment what he is declaring of himself and demonstrating that to us. You know, some people would call it ten words. Ellen White would refer to the commandments of God as ten promises. And I can assure you, by the end of the week, even though we're just going to look at the first five this week, you'll understand why these people would say that. You know, a colleague of mine just brought it to my attention that the top 101 theological questions in 2019 that were uh, searched on Google is quite amazing what they came up with. Top 101. Now, what would you think the number one question would be? Put it in your mind. Here it is. The number one question is, what is love? I can tell you what is love. 
God is love. The Bible in Romans 13.10 would tell us that his law is love. And so, friends, hopefully by the time we finish up here this week, you'll understand why God would declare his law love and that you'll understand the answer to this question, what is love? It will be God. And so our focus will be to look at each commandment and from that draw what God is declaring about himself. And then also with the the revelation that he gives, we'll understand what he is asking of us, what he wants to restore in our very life so that by beholding, we will become changed. You see, the life of our Redeemer throughout his pilgrimage on earth was a living representation of the character of the law of God. And when God created man, he created him for a purpose. He created him for a relationship. And no matter where you go in the world, I have found that all relationships, if they're going to be healthy, happy, and safe, they have to have boundaries. And so... Whether it's a business relationship, a friendship, a marriage, there has to be boundaries if it's going to if it's going to be fruitful, if it's going to be healthy, if there's going to be security, if there's going to be peace, if there's going to be happiness. And so, since the fall of God, God has come to seek and to save, to free and to forgive, to cleanse and to heal, to transform and to restore his image and his likeness in you and I. And so the commandments of God serve as a hedge of protection. They're there as a a set of boundaries to keep that relationship solid and safe. We would see this. I'm sorry, I forgot to put this in here. I want to go back and say this. 3,350,000 people ask the question every month, what is love? That's amazing. What is love? 3,350,000 people. Amazing. So the great controversy would tell us in regard, I mean, sorry, Thoughts on Mountain of Blessings, page 52, would tell us this in regards to the commandment of God. There is not a commandment of the law that is not for our good and the happy, not for the good and happiness of man. It's, it's definitely for us, friends, not against us. Both in this life and the life to come, in obedience to God's law, man is surrounded as with a hedge and kept from the evil. He who breaks down the divine erected barrier at one point has destroyed its, its power to protect him. For he has opened a way by which the enemy can enter and to waste and ruin. And so as I kneel down and pray and ask for God's blessing here, I invite you to kneel and pray with me. And I'm going to pray this prayer that David would pray in Psalms 119 verses 17 through 19. And his prayer was, Lord, deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandment from me. And as I pray, I'm asking you to also pray this prayer that our hearts would be open, our minds will be enlightened, and we will receive the revelation that God desires to give to us today. Let's pray. Dear loving Father, we bow humbly before you in the name of Jesus, and we know that every time the law has been opened in the Old Testament, there's been revival and reformation. And thy servant would tell us 
that when the law of God is restored to its rightful position, that there will be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. Lord, I'm praying that as I share, that you'll hide me behind a cross, that Christ's voice will be heard, that your spirit will speak, and that at the end of this presentation, people will know that you have talked to them, you have spoken, that you have touched their heart. And I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, and I thank you for hearing me. Amen. You know, slavery is a terrible thing, but slavery to sin is the worst of all. The children of Israel would find themselves enslaved and in bondage to the most powerful nation in the world at that time. The Pharaoh himself was to be looked upon as a god. They had been in bondage for hundreds of years and would have come to the point of almost having the memory of God erased from their mind. But God had made a promise to them that he would deliver, that he would remember them. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. I titled this presentation, Attention, Affections, and Affairs. As we go through this study, you'll understand more why I titled it as this. Exodus chapter 6. They had been bondage for some time. God was about to deliver. They had not known him as their fathers had known him, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there had to be an experience that they would receive in order to know the only true God who was about to deliver them. Then the Lord said unto Moses, starting with verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shall thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by the name Jehovah was I not known unto them. It wasn't that they did not know God's name. Here God had made Abraham and Isaac a promise and, a, and, and Jacob a promise. But as a nation, they had not experienced God the way their fathers had. As a nation, they had not experienced the covenant fulfillment that was about to take place. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage wherein they were strangers. I have also heard their groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Now I want you to listen to two words that are constantly emphasized from this, emphasized from this point out. See if you catch it. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. Over and over again in these passages, God would share with them. He would say it again to to get it in their mind, I will, I will, I will. I want you to know you're not going to do this. You're not expected to do it, but I will do it because I have remembered what I have told your fathers. And I will take you to be a people to me, and I will be your God. What a beautiful promise. But you know what? As Moses, verse 9, as Moses spoke unto the children of Israel, they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. They were so broken. They were so, so ensnared and, and captive by their enemy that they could not see how could this possibly happen. But see, God would not just tell them. God would perform So over the next several chapters, God is then demonstrating what he promised he would do. He's he's courting them, you could say, in this relationship before he enters into a covenant with them personally as a nation. You know, if you're going to get married, there's courtship before the marriage. You just don't walk down the aisle and do it. I know some people probably do, but it, it doesn't last that long. But in a courtship, when it takes place, there's, a, there's, there's a, a proving, are we compatible? Is it the right fit? Do you spend time together? You get acquainted with one another. In the book of Job, chapter 22, verse 21 through 22, he would tell us, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, his law in thy heart and lay up thy words that he has spoken. Yes, friends, we need to take time to acquaint ourselves with him. And he was about to do this with the children of Israel. You come down to chapter 19 and you'll discover there from verse 4 to 6 that God would tell him, I've done all of this so that I could bring you unto myself. His burden was that he could have them as a nation for himself so that he could reveal himself to them that they could then take that testimony to the world and share it with others what great things God has done. And so he would begin the covenant with reminding them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, You see, I am the one that has accomplished your deliverance. He's reminding them, I delivered you. I have authority over nature. Remember my power over Pharaoh. Remember, I'm the one that divided the Red Sea. I provided for you in the wilderness. And when you murmured and complained, I revealed a love that would not let you go. Yes, remember, I am the Lord that has brought you out and set you free. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It wasn't for selfish reasons that God was asking this. It was because he proved himself faithful. You see, in a relationship, exclusivity and commitment are needed and are essential if the marriage is going to flourish. Faithfulness and commitment are foundational to a relationship if it's going to be healthy, happy, and safe. 
And as a sign that God would like to be married and stay married with them, they had to purpose and propose in their heart that they would not choose another God. Just like in a marriage relationship, you walk up and you would make those commitments. You take those vows. And you purpose in your heart during the courtship, not at the altar, that you're not going to choose anybody else. When you make that vow with your spouse, you're declaring to the world, he or she is the only one for you. There is no other. You're com committing to faithfulness. And so throughout the Bible, God has declared his faithfulness. I'm going to pull up a few verses on the screen here. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments he's a faithful god lamentations 3 22 and 23 it's a famous verse many people know it by heart though the lord's mercies through the lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new how long how often every morning every day great is his faithfulness and in psalms 89 3 david would declare understanding his interaction with God and how true he was to him. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. You know, Jesus promised us in the book of Matthew 28, 20, he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He's declaring his faithfulness to you and I. So when our creator, he, he created Adam and Eve, he took personal interest in them. He gave them everything that they needed for life. And when they fell, he provided. Beforehand, before it even happened, there was a plan in place for the redemption and salvation. Because God is faithful. But you know, what I love about the Lord is he's just not about declaring something. He's all about demonstration. You see, he would declare to Israel in Exodus chapter 6, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. And over the next several chapters, he'd fulfilled those very promises. He carried it out. He did that for them, and he'll do it for us. So some of the promises that we can look to and be assured that he will do it because he is faithful I love this one, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Every promise that he has made, he stands behind it based upon his faithfulness. Luke nineteen ten. for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. You know, when the children of Israel were there in captivity, they were in bondage, he would come to set the captives free. But my spirit, he says, but my God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He supplied their every need, friends. He'll supply your every need. And I love this one, Psalms 86, 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those that call upon you. Every time I think about this verse, I think about God sitting on the edge of his throne looking down just eager and anxious to forgive 
to heal and cleanse and restore. What a beautiful picture it gives us of God. He demonstrated that to Israel through that time of deliverance. He would demonstrate that to them throughout the history of their nation. So he would do the same thing for us. You know, Romans 15, 5 tells us that all this was written aforetime for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, you and I might have hope. And so when we read these, these verses in Exodus chapter 6 here, we can be encouraged that if you're struggling, whatever you're struggling with, he hears your, the heart groaning. He hears your heart crying out. No matter how feeble that cry is. You know, I, I put a a uh, spirit of prophecy quote in my Bible to remind me of this. I'm going to read that. It's from Christ's Object Lessons. It says here from page 206, the very first reaching out of the heart after God is known to him. Never a prayer is offered, however faltering. Never a tear is shed, however secret. Never a sincere desire after God is cherished, however, however feeble, but the Spirit of God goes forth to meet it. Even before the prayer is uttered or the yearning of the heart made known, grace from Christ goes forth to meet the grace that is working upon the human soul. That is amazing, friends. And so, yes, He hears your heart cry. He has power to save and to redeem. He will establish you as His child. He will perform those things that He has promised and He will accomplish it. And He will see you all the way to the promised land. Just as he promised Israel, just as he led them, he's willing to lead you and I. But what would it look like to have another God in our life? You know, before they would go in, he would warn them in Exodus 23 and 24, 32 and 33. He would tell them, don't serve their idols. Don't serve their gods. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't bring them in your land. Don't bring them in your house. Don't get acquainted with them. Don't look at how they're serving their gods and worship me like that. Because I'm God. I am holy God. I'm a holy God. I am not like these other nations. You are not to be like them. So what would it look like to have another God before him? Or you could, I could ask the question, what would it look like if an individual was having a spiritual affair, as I titled it, Attention, Affections, and Affairs? Well, manuscript, page 126, 1901, says this. Let not, cherish, let not selfish pride be lifted up and served as a god. Let not money be made a god. If sensuality is not kept under control of the higher powers of the mind, base passions will rule the being. Anything that is made the subject of undue thought or admiration Absorbing the mind is a God chosen before the Lord. Selfish pride, friends. Money. Passion. If that is ruling the life, that has become a God in the individual's life. Patriarchs and prophets would also add this. Jehovah, the eternal, self-existent, uncreated one, himself the source and sustainer of all, is alone entitled to supreme reverence and worship. Man is forbidden to give any other object the first place in his affections or his service. 
So the conclusion is this. Whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or interfere with the service due Him, of that do we make a God. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know what? I, I, I don't have any other gods in my life. I come to church uh, every Sabbath. I, I, I live by the health message. I pay my tithe. I give my offering. But I love what it says here in Steps to Christ. She asks a few questions. And I'm asking the Spirit of God to touch your heart as I ask these questions. Because I believe that we are living in a time in which Jesus is wanting to prepare us to meet him face to face. And just as Moses would stand on a mountain with God and ask to see his glory, before he would ask that, he did a lot of heart searching so that he would not be consumed by the glory of God. And so in order for us to see God face to face, we need to do some heart searching and so as I ask these questions, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will speak to you as I've been asking God to speak to me through the same questions. Steps to Christ, page 58. First question, who has your heart? Who has your affections? Who has your attention? Or what has your attention? With whom are your thoughts? When you wake up in the morning, who are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Of whom or what do you love to converse about? Think about your conversation through the day, day in, day out. What's on your lips? Who are you talking about? Or what are you talking about? Who has your warmest affections and your best energies? I hope you take those four questions you write them down, and you'll kneel down and you'll ask God, Lord, show me. Show me, Lord, do you have my heart? If not, who does? Do you have my thoughts? If not, who or what does? Lord, show me who I love to talk about. Is it you? Or is it something of the world? Who has my warmest affections and my best energies? I believe God will speak to you if he hasn't already. Now, I tell you what. When Israel chose new gods, when Israel chose new gods, there was war in their gates. They could not stand against their enemies. There was no peace there was no security. There was no hope. Until they put the gods away, until they, they made a reformation in their life, until there was confession and repentance, there was no unity again with God. Amos 3.3 would tell us, Can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, friends, God is faithful. I love it when conviction comes because it tells me something about God's heart. It tells me about a loving father that just will not let me go down that path of destruction. He's going to constantly just irritate my mind. He's going to put stumbling blocks before me and a, a, in a wall if he has to because he does not want to lose me. Friends, he does not want to lose you. 
he would give us a beautiful promise in Proverbs 1.23. He would tell us this, turn at my rebuke. In other words, respond to my correction and surely I will pour out my spirit upon you and I will make my words known unto you. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are constantly praying for the latter rain. We're asking God, pour out your spirit. But he says, you know what? I'd love to do so, but you're not listening to my voice of correction. Therefore, you will not hear my voice given direction. I want to pour out my spirit upon you. But I'm asking you to search your heart. Turn at my reproof, and I will pour out my spirit upon you. He does it not to condemn. Friends, keep this in mind. When God pricks your heart, he's just laying his finger on something that he says, you know what, that's, that's dividing us in our relationship. You're not faithful here in this relationship. And I want to let you know, in order for it to be right, that has to go so that I can come close to you. He does it not to condemn but to heal and restore. Steps to Christ, page 33, would tell us this. Every act of transgression, every neglect or rejection of the grace of Christ is reacting upon yourself. It is hardening the heart, depriving the will, benumbing the understanding, and not only making you less inclined to yield, but less capable of yielding to the tender pleading of God's Holy Spirit. When God speaks to us, it is imperative that we just humble ourselves and say, yes, Lord. You know what? He doesn't mind if you say, I hear you, Lord, but I don't understand. Help me understand. He's okay with that prayer. You know, my wife wants to see me in heaven. And and when my, my wife tells me, Honey, what you're doing or what you've done did not or does not represent God. It's not in harmony with his character. When my my best friend, one of my best friends, Pastor Ron Kelly, when he says, Dennis, I I don't think this this is in harmony with the way God would have us have you live. This is not in harmony with the principle in which we are to live by, we're called to live by. You know, I don't look at my, my wife or my, my good friend Ron as a enemy. No, I, you know, I tell you what, <laughs> when your spouse speaks to you or maybe a very close friend speaks to you, maybe it doesn't feel so comfortable in the heart at that time because pride is there. But they're not your enemy. As Pastor Ron would always tell me and he as uh, he would quote from Scripture, that the wound of an enemy, the wound of a friend is better than a kiss from an enemy. So when God speaks, he just wants to heal. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore. And I love this quote here from Testimonies to the Church, volume 5, page 537. It says this, For the, the forgiveness of sins is not the sole result of the death of Jesus. He made the infinite sacrifice not only that sin might be removed, but that the human nature might be restored, rebeautified, reconstructed from its ruins, and made right for the presence of God. Now, I am so 
thankful for that quote. I'm so thankful for 1 John 1, 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, if all God could do for me was just forgive me, I'd be a most miserable Christian. And I'm, sorry, I'm sad to know that there's a lot of Christians out there today that they go through that, that, that routine over and over again thinking that that's all God does for them is forgives. But he wants to do more than that. He wants to restore. He wants to heal. He wants to recreate in you and I his very image, his likeness. So just as faithfulness flows out of the heart of God, He can't help but make an invitation to you and I. And this invitation comes from Proverbs 23, 26. So He's asking for something. He says, My son, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. You know, if, if you had a broken down vehicle and somebody said, you know what, I, I see that's pretty, pretty beat up. It sounds like it's barely running for you these days. How about if you give that to me and I'll give you a brand new 2020 vehicle? What would you say? Would you hesitate? Would you, would you cling to the old the old beat-up, broken-down vehicle? No. You'd give him the keys, give him the title. You'd probably fill it up with gas and tell him, thank you very much for taking it off my hands. You would rejoice to have that new vehicle. Friends, God wants to give you and I a new heart, but he's asking, first of all, for you to be willing to give it up. He says, my son, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Steps to Christ would tell us this. The whole heart must be yielded to God. You see, he's not interested in sharing your heart. No. He's not interested with just three quarters of your heart or 99% of your heart. Not at all. The invitation is give me your heart. The whole heart. The whole heart must be yielded to God or the change can never be wrought in us by which we are to be restored in His likeness. By nature, we are alienated from God. The Holy Spirit describes our condition in such words as these, dead in trespasses and sins. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. There's no soundness in, soundness in it. We are held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him at his will. Friends, God desires to heal us, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of the whole nature, we must yield ourselves partially to him. Is that what it says? No, wholly, fully, and completely to him. If, if you're walking down the aisle and you're about to get married to somebody, you expect that spouse 
as they're giving their vows that they're committing their whole heart to you. The relationship with God is no different. He's asking for all of it. Complete faithfulness. And he wants to restore faithfulness in your life and mine. And the, the beautiful thing about God is, is he understands just how broken and feeble we are. He understands that we're, we're so broken, we can't, even, we can't even give him our heart. And so in Isaiah 119, he would tell us, if you're willing, isn't that beautiful? If you're willing, and then he says, and obedient, I'm so glad that he says, if you're willing first, and not if you're obedient and willing. No, if you're willing, he'll do something special for you. He says, I'll give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Now, I want you to keep in mind here, we started out with a story in Exodus chapter 6. And more than a half a dozen times, God would say, I will. In his promise to deliver Israel out of bondage and set them free and bring them into the promised land. You see, we're on the verge of entering into the promised land. We cannot enter in with a half heart for God and half for the world. We cannot even enter into his kingdom with 99% with God and 1% in the world. You see, it's, with God, it's all or nothing because he's not going to share it with anybody else. It's not that he's selfish. It's because he's committed and he's asking us to be committed. So he invites us to give him our heart. And he says, if you're willing, friends, if you're willing, this is what he promises. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. You know, he'll take that self-willed, stubborn, selfish, self-desiring heart. He'll take that out. He'll give you a heart that is pliable, moldable, one that he can shape and refashion and recreate in his likeness, his image. And because he knows we can't keep it, he adds to it, I will give you my spirit. That's awesome. Think about this, friends. He's not only going to give us a new heart if we respond to the invitation. He says, I will also with that give you my spirit. Don't miss this. This is the greatest need of every Christian in the world today is the outpouring of God's Spirit in their life. But the heart has to be given to God in order for this to happen, fully and completely. A willingness is what he's asking. Are you willing? So I'll pour out my Spirit upon you. I will give you my Spirit. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And because my Spirit is living your life, you will keep my judgments and you will do them. And you'll do it with joy and happiness, just like in a marriage, in, in, when you're faithful to your spouse, you do it because you're happy to do it. You choose no other one before them because you're happy, you're committed, you're devoted, you're faithful. 
And so God realizes that we've been serving him or perhaps have served him or struggled to serve him because there's a division in the heart. He says, I got a remedy for that. I will give you a new heart and I will give you my spirit as well. And so what could we expect it to look like in our life as God imparts a new heart? As God is writing faithfulness, that one word today for today's commandment, faithfulness, what would it look like in our life? Because remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter in. And so I, as I'm going through the scriptures, these verses came to my mind. Matthew six thirty three. As God imparts and he's writing his law of faithfulness in my heart, I will seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what it would look like, faithfulness. Waking up in the morning, it's not just getting up in time to go to work, maybe get a bite to eat and run out the door. It will be spending time with God in prayer, spending time in God's word, searching first for the kingdom of God. I will not forsake the coming together with the body of Christ. When faithfulness is written in the heart, when it's being written in the heart, there's a coming together with brothers and sisters in Christ. You will not forsake the assembly of the brethren. You're not going to sleep in Sabbath morning and just show up for the service or just walk in just in time as the preacher's there. You're going to be preparing all week long for that special event. You're going to be at the prayer meetings. You're going to be at those special evangelistic meetings, supporting the speaker, supporting the church family, because faithfulness is being written in the heart. You'll be ready to forgive others when you're offended, as God has forgiven you. Yes, the scar may be there, but you will forgive, just as the scars are still in the hands of Jesus, but yet he offers forgiveness. You'll keep an attitude of prayer for others. You'll be there for them when they need it as Jesus has been there and has promised to be there for you and I. You'll seek to save and search out those that are lost. That's what faithfulness looks like when it's being written in the heart. You're not just concerned about yourself. It's not just the regular routine of life. You're on the lookout for precious souls. You'll give to others as God has given to you. As he has blessed you and supplied your needs, you'll look for opportunity to bless and supply others. That's what faithfulness will look like as he's writing it in your heart. You'll encourage others to look to Jesus and trust in his power because we can be confident in him that he will complete the work he's begun unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be true to your word as God's been true to his by the grace of God. You will be true to your word. So is it your desire to have faithfulness written in your heart? 1 Thessalonians, in the latter part, right at the close of the chapter, it says, faithful is he that has called you who will also do it. Several years ago, there was 
two boys that they, they love to challenge each other. One of the things they like to do is see who could hold their breath the longest when they went for a swim. And one was 14, one was 11. And they lived by a gravel pit. And they lived by a nice lake where the water just kind of tapered out. And their parents would always warn them and tell them, don't go to the gravel pit. It's dangerous there. Yes, Mom, Dad, we won't go there. But they liked it because there was a large rock that they could just dive off of and see could hold their breath the longest. So that morning after breakfast, they asked if they could go swimming. And their parents told them once again, sure, but don't go over to the gravel pit. No, we won't go there. Well, as they were walking and they were thinking about this challenge they were making to each other that day, the younger brother said, you know what, I'm going to win today. I've been practicing. And the older brother said, no, you're not going to win. He says, yes, let's go to the pit. Let's go to the gravel pit. All right, let's go. And they ran, they ran there, and they were all excited. They get to the top rock. They throw down their towel. He takes off his T-shirt. The younger brother says, I'm going first. And he dives in. And the older brother just gets the stopwatch going. And he's waiting. Five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. He's getting a little concerned. His brother's never held his breath for 20 seconds. 25 seconds, 30 seconds. He's like, wow, what's going on? And he throws off his shirt. He throws down a stopwatch. He dives in the water. He starts swimming towards the bottom. And there he sees his brother. His foot is caught in some rubbish at the bottom of the pit, trying to break free. He sees the fear and anxiety on his face, and he can't get free. He rushes to the bottom. He tries to free him, but he cannot get him loose. Several hours pass. It's lunchtime now, and the parents are looking for their boys. They haven't come home yet. He's, they're wondering where they're at, so they go to look for him. They go to the lake. They're not there. They go over to the gravel pit, and they climb up to the rock where they know they have caught him before, and they see their, their towels and their T-shirts laying there. They realize something's wrong. They call the police. They send out a diver. The diver goes in. As he's swimming near the bottom, he sees the younger boy. He sees he is caught in the rubbish there. But he's, he's stunned because he doesn't understand why the older brother is still there with his younger brother. He sees their arms embraced. And as he gets closer, he can see the face of the younger brother. And there's no fear or anxiety. There's peace. There's a smile. You see, friends, Jesus hung on the cross. At the cross, he demonstrated the greatest amount of faithfulness he could for you and I. He hung there for you and me, our older brother, a love that would not let us go. I'm appealing to you. Let Jesus write faithfulness in your heart. Give him your heart and do it day by day and allow him to restore in you his very likeness and his image. Is that your choice? Is that your desire? Right where you are, I invite you to raise your hand.
and God is faithful who has called you, God will do it. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you. We thank you for your commitment and your devotion to us. We thank you that you, you would call us to have no other gods before you because you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us to give you our heart today and the promise of a new heart. And with that, your spirit, we rejoice to know that you are with us and that you will see us through unto the end. Thank you for the decisions that have been made. Thank you, Lord, for being with us today. In Jesus' name, glorify your name as you continue to write faithfulness in our lives. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.